Good afternoon. So good to see so many of you today. What a joy to sing together Sunday after Sunday to praise our good and gracious King. Amen? If you have your Bibles, please get ready to turn. Get ready to turn. 1 Kings chapter 2. William the Conqueror, also known as William the Bastard by his enemies, was born by illegitimate birth by his unmarried father, Robert the Magnificent of Normandy, and one of his many concubines. William had to overcome enormous obstacles on his path to being the first Norman king of England and to establish his throne from A.D. 1066 to 1087. A few of those obstacles were, William had to claim first that the English throne had been promised by the former king of England, Edward the Confessor, Next, he had to initiate the Norman conquest, a military campaign to assert his claim to the English throne. In other words, he had to win numerous bloody battles. Then he had to win the submission from many English nobles and church officials to be formally crowned as king. Following his coronation, William had to suppress several rebellions and uprisings by English nobles and Viking invaders, which resulted in widespread devastation and loss of life as William sought to consolidate his control by crushing every resistance that came across his way. All to say, when you are an illegitimate heir to the throne, it's not easy to establish your reign. The king's throne is often fought tooth and nail, and one has to fight to death to keep it. Yet in our passage this afternoon, we see how unlike William the Conqueror's ascent to the throne, Solomon... David's illegitimate son, his ascent to the throne was rather peacefully and firmly established. How? We're continuing our study through First and Second Kings in our series, The King of Kings. And as I shared with you, the kings isn't about the pomp and glory of Israel's kings. It's actually the story of Israel's short-lived kingdom, her short-lived glory and her downfall and her exile. But the message of the kings is this. Even though everything falls apart, the word of the Lord stands unhindered. Though kings and kingdoms rise and fall, though temples and nations crumble, the promises of God remains and outlast every human being, every earthly empire. The first message in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 12 answered the question of the passage, Who will be the next king? Who is the promised king of whom God made a covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 17? That through David's offspring, God would establish his kingdom and build a house for his name and establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 12 showed us that David, the impotent dying king, is not the promised king. Adonijah, Although the rightful successor to the throne, his self-exalting proved he was not God's king. He was not the heir of God's promise. Well, Solomon is the chosen king, but in these earlier chapters, the question still remains, doesn't it? Is Solomon the promised king? Because what we'll see in the kings is that Solomon is quite the confusing king. And the only way we'll come to know who Solomon truly is is to see whether Solomon will be the obedient king. 
as the king of Israel, will Solomon stay true and faithful to God's word? Will Solomon do all in his power to esteem high the word of the Lord? Solomon is, yes, the next king. But the question of our passage today is, will the kingdom stand? So from 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 13 through 46, I want to share with you four ways God establishes his kingdom and why that matters to us. Here's the outline so you can know what's ahead. God establishes his kingdom, point number one, by eliminating threats in order to keep his covenant promises. By eliminating threats in order to keep his covenant promises from verses 12 through 25. Point number two, God establishes his kingdom by expelling unfaithfulness in order to fulfill his word from verses 26 through 27. By expelling unfaithfulness in order to fulfill his word. Point number three, by executing justice in order to bring peace from verses 28 through 35 by executing justice in order to bring peace. And point number four, by establishing his authority in accordance with his commands, from verses 36 through 46. By establishing his authority in accordance with his commands. Brothers and sisters, I pray through this message, you will come to know more deeply and truly our God, who establishes his kingdom through his word, by exacting justice upon his enemies, and by showing mercy upon those who heed his word. Guests and visitors, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today at our weekly Sunday gathering. We have been praying for you, praying that the Lord would lead you here to hear his word and to heed his invitation to repent and trust in him. So without further ado, let's turn to his word found on page 280 and 281. And when you find it, I want to ask you to please keep your Bibles open and reference it often as I read and preach so that you know that this is God's word for you, to grow you in knowledge and faith in his word. Amen? Point number one, how does God establish his kingdom? Point number one, by eliminating threats in order to keep his covenant promises. Take a look with me from verses 12 through 25. It says this, So Solomon sat on the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. Then Adonijah the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. And she said, Do you come peacefully? He said, Peacefully. Then he said, I have something to say to you. She said, Speak. He said, You know that the kingdom was mine and that all Israel fully expected me to reign. However, the kingdom has turned about and become my brother's, for it was his from the Lord. And now I have one request to make of you. Do not refuse me. She said to him, Speak. Then he said, Please ask King Solomon, he will not refuse you to give me Abishag the Shumanite as my wife. Bathsheba said, Very well, I will speak for you to the king. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him on behalf of Adonijah. And the king rose to meet her and bowed down to her. And he sat on his throne and had a seat brought for the king's mother. And she sat on his right. Then she said, I have one small request to make of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, Make your request, my mother, for I will not refuse you. She said, Let Abishag the Shumanite be given to Adonijah your brother as his wife. King Solomon answered his mother, And why do you ask Abishag the Shumanite for Adonijah? Ask for him the kingdom also, for he is my older brother. And on his side are Abathar the priest and Joab the son of Zeruah. 
Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, God, do so to me, and more also, if the word does not cost Adonijah his life. Now therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and placed me on the throne of David my father, and who has made me a house, as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. So King Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down, and he died. You notice I ask you to look from verse 12, and that's because the first observation we can make from our passage is that even though in many of our Bible translations in English, a verse 13 begins a new section, but we need to remember this, that paragraph headings and paragraph divisions in our Bibles aren't inspired. Well, if you look at verse 12 and the second half of verse 46, you'll see that these verses form what is called an inclusio, which is a literary device where the author bookends the beginning and the ending so that whatever content that falls in the middle forms the context of the beginning and the end. So look at verse 12. That's why I encourage you to open your Bibles and take a look. Verse 12 says, So Solomon sat on the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. And then look at the second half of verse 46. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. So you see this entire passage is about how God establishes Solomon's reign. And he does so first by eliminating threats which might contest, which might challenge Solomon's reign. Now if you need a refresher of why I'm saying it is God who establishes Solomon's throne and not Solomon himself, it's because in chapter 1 it clearly showed us when David was weak and dying, when Adonijah was the rightful successor of David's throne, it's through Nathan the prophet Remembering God's covenant with David, Solomon was crowned as the next king, wasn't it? Not only that, at the end of verse 15, Adonijah confirms, The kingdom has turned about and become my brother's, for it was his from the Lord. See, Solomon had very little to do with being established as king. Now, there's a lot going on in these verses, so let me first focus on the main issue. Adonijah clearly knows God gave Solomon the kingdom. He acknowledges as much. But the fact of the matter is, Adonijah is not happy about it. Adonijah is unsettled about God's will and purpose. Adonijah is dissatisfied. He is troubled. He is upset. We hear it in his words to Bathsheba, don't we? You know that the kingdom was mine, and all Israel fully expected me to reign. Of course, none of this is surprising. We found out from chapter 1 that Adonijah was the self-exalting kingmaker. More grievously, however, Adonijah is unwilling to accept God's will, that he should not be king and that someone else is. He wanted to be king so bad, even against God's will, that he would not be refused, which is the reason why it's so curious and so strange that Adonijah approaches not Solomon, but his mother Bathsheba to ask for a request she could not refuse. In the original Hebrew, you can see the play on words by the author. Adonijah goes to Bathsheba. She asks him, do you come peacefully? And he answers, peacefully. Shalom, shalom. Just like the false prophets in the Bible who pronounced peace, peace when there was no peace. Adonijah wasn't approaching Solomon with shalom after all. He was threatening the peace with ambitions for war. And why was Adonijah's request a threat? 
Because what Adonijah was doing by requesting to have Abishag, the Shumanite, as his wife, was not simply because Abishag was the most beautiful woman in all of Israel, according to chapter 1, because he was attracted to her physically. It wasn't because Adonijah was in love with her. It wasn't emotional. It was because having his father king's concubine meant clearly he wanted a piece of the kingdom. This was exactly what Adonijah's older brother Absalom did in his rebellion against their father King David as he was attempting a coup by sleeping with his father's concubines, which you can read all about in 2 Samuel chapter 16. Except, unlike Absalom, Adonijah doesn't just go for it. What does he do? He goes to Solomon's mother of all people. Adonijah was a coward. What other answer is there in why Adonijah goes to Bathsheba and not Solomon himself? See, Adonijah couldn't man up to Solomon face to face, but he would threaten his mother. He wouldn't take no for an answer, so Solomon's mother would be the way. He would get what he wanted. It was underhanded manipulation what he was doing. Now, I have to admit, I actually wrestled with this interaction quite a bit. Biblical scholars are divided on this. To me, Bathsheba's character is also quite confusing. Like mother, like son perhaps, as we'll come to know. Verse 20 is what confuses me the most. Bathsheba says to King Solomon, bringing Adonijah's request, I have one small request to make of you. Do not refuse me. Why was Bathsheba so set on bringing Adonijah's strange request to our son, the King Solomon? Some biblical scholars simply say Bathsheba was naive or stupid, that she didn't understand the full ramifications of what she was requesting on behalf of Adonijah. Perhaps so. Which may be the reason why Solomon responds so upset in verse 22. Why do you ask Abishag the Shumanite for Adonijah? You might as well ask for him the kingdom also. And that's why I think it makes more sense that Sheba was being threatened by Adonijah and she knew it so. And Bathsheba wanted her son, King Solomon, to know of the serious threat of Adonijah and his desire for power. As we know, she had feared for her life and her son's life in the previous chapter, in chapter 1. And so by going to the king, which culturally speaking had to be done very cautiously and reverently, and for her to make this request on behalf of Adonijah and asking him to not refuse her, Bathsheba must have wanted Solomon to know of the gravity of the situation. Well, we can't say for sure what Bathsheba was thinking or what her intentions were, why she seemingly sides with Adonijah. Was it because she hated Abishag? Was it because she felt compassion for Adonijah? Speculations could abound. But we'll see Bathsheba mentioned for the last time in the scriptures. But she leaves honored as the king's mother and seated at the right hand of Solomon. So we'll take that for what it is. But the main point of these verses is this. King Solomon quickly catches wind of what Adonijah is up to. Adonijah has been shown mercy by Solomon, if you recall, in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 52. If he, Adonijah, will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall on the earth, but if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. Well, not accepting King Solomon's kingship was wickedness. Wanting his father's concubine was wickedness. Threatening the queen mother was wickedness. But worst of all, rejecting God's will was Adonijah's death sentence. Because as Solomon says in verse 24, 
Now therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and placed me on the throne of David, my father, and who has made me a house as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. The fact of the matter, again, is it was God who established Solomon on the throne. It was God who granted Solomon a dynasty according to his promise to David. And to go against God's word and purpose surely meant death. God had established Solomon's reign as he promised. And through Solomon, God eliminates Adonijah, an enemy of God's word, a threat to God's purpose. Brothers and sisters, there's no easy way to say it. This has always been the case for humanity since creation. To obey God's word means life. To disobey God's word means death. We are not to be offended. We are not, we ought to take heed the warning. God is the author of life, according to Acts 3.15. God is the source of all life, according to Psalm 36.9. And we know there is a grander purpose, don't we? On why Solomon had to be established as king on David's throne as according to promise. Why David's offspring had to be put on the throne in order that a forever kingdom may be established. Why enemies of God's promise had to be eliminated. We're going to talk more about that as we progress in the Kings. But please, please, please do not miss this. The lessons of these verses through the example of Adonijah. Adonijah was a man who wanted more than what he was granted. He was a man who coveted what was not his. He was a man who stupidly knew what he wanted was against God's will. Yet he wanted it anyways. He was one who had been shown mercy Show yourself worthy and you will not die, he was warned. Yet he forfeits that mercy because he wanted what he wanted. Power, sex, glory. Brothers and sisters, how do you respond when God makes it clear to you that what you don't have now, you must not need? What is your attitude when you experience rejection? Financial setbacks medical hardships, failed relationships? What is your response to God in your season of waiting, in your season of trial, in your season of lack? Do you seek compensation? Do you seek reparation for past wrongs? Are you entitled? Are you covetous and jealous? You only know what's in your heart. Are you trusting in the Lord? Are you trusting in the Lord's will and purpose for your life? Or are you so upset of what you don't have now that you are willing to twist and manipulate, that you are willing to pervert and undermine God's known word to you, to us, in order to get what you want? Adonijah could have lived. Adonijah could have gained our sympathies. He was the rightful heir, potentially. Yet what a tragedy. What a anti-legacy, a spoiled brat, a self-exalting king, an entitled manipulator, a man who rejected and opposed God's word and will. Beloved, what will be your identity? What will be your legacy? In the life choices you make, in the mercies you have been granted, will you live your life to support and submit to God's king and his kingship? Or will you live and die fighting against it? Well, we should continue on. How does God establish his kingdom? Point number two by expelling unfaithfulness in order to fulfill his word. Verses 26 and 27. 
the after story of Avathar, the priest who supported Adonijah's attempt at the throne, is given the shortest coverage in this passage, two verses, yet it stands out. Amongst those who are executed by death for their association in alignment with a pro-Adonijah party, Abathar experiences more mercy and his life is spared. Look at verses 26 and 27 again. It says this. And to Abathar, the priest, the king said, Go to Anathoth, to your estate, for you deserve death. But I will not at this time put you to death because you carry the ark of the Lord God before David my father and because you shared in all my father's affliction. So Solomon expelled Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. Simply, brothers and sisters, Abiathar, the priest's sin, was unfaithfulness. He was a man who lost his way. He was an unfaithful priest. Clues in chapter 1, verses 43 through 48, when Abiathar's son Jonathan brings the good news that David had made Solomon king, and how Abathar quickly abandons Adonijah as soon as they realize that his aspirations were not legitimate in uh, chapter 1 verse 49, tells us perhaps that Adonijah may not have been consciously rebelling against King David in his support of Adonijah. As verse 26 states, Abathar was one of King David's supporters and companions, one of the closest and oldest. He helped carry the ark of the Lord with David and had shared all of David's sufferings. Yet what happened? That Abathar would side man's choice rather than God's choice for the next king. As previously mentioned, perhaps Abathar was upset he wasn't being promoted as the next high priest. Perhaps he was disgruntled and dissatisfied in his conflict with Zadok, the up-and-coming high priest. Don't miss the point. The important phrase in verse 26, you carried the ark of the Lord God. The phrase, the Lord God, there in the original language is, is translated, my Lord Yahweh. The NIV translates the sovereign Lord to draw emphasis. It's a unique phrase used only seven or eight times. The last time God was referred to with this phrase was when David responded to the historic covenant promise of 2 Samuel 7. And the phrase will not occur again in the Kings except only in one other place very significantly in 1 Kings 8.53. What this tells us is that Abathar was not rejecting God's sovereignty, nor the sovereign word or the will of God. It was very possible that Abathar was simply misaligning himself with the wrong man as the next king. As perhaps you might have elected the wrong president in the past elections, which had terrible consequences. Abathar had wrongly thrown his support for the candidate who wasn't God's choice. That, however did not exempt Abathar from his guilt. For the phrase, for you deserve death, literally means you are marked as a man of death, expressing Solomon's rage. Solomon is doing more than just threatening Abathar. He is officially passing the death sentence on him, even though his punishment will be suspended until further notice. However, the more important reason why Abathar's life is spared is to make the point and the emphasis of the next verse. Look at verse 27. So Solomon expelled Abathar from being priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. You see, Solomon may not have known it, but the author of the Kings is very well aware that God is at work fulfilling a greater purpose for these historic and theological records of the Kings 
The immediate background and context of verse 27 is in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 27 through 36 that our sister Min read for us. You see, many years earlier in the days of Abathar's great-great-grandfather Eli, the Lord had accounted the end of the house of Eli serving as priest because of the corruption of Eli's sons and Eli's own ineffectiveness in correcting his son's ways. Abathar was the last surviving descendant of Eli, and his banishment by Solomon therefore brought this word of prophecy of the Lord to fruition, spoken four generations earlier, fulfilled now in our text. As one commentator notes, brothers and sisters, here we meet a theme we will see again and again throughout the books of the Kings. Through the ups and downs of history, by the worthy and unworthy actions of humans, the Lord is accomplishing His purpose, keeping His promise, and fulfilling His word. Whatever Abathar's motives may have been inciting with Adonijah, and whatever moved Solomon to spare Abathar's life, but to dismiss him from the priesthood, the course of history was unfolding under the sovereign covenant, keeping Yahweh's powerful hand. God's purpose was being accomplished, you see. So brothers and sisters, I pray that you will not miss it. Ignorance is not an excuse for unfaithfulness. Negligence is not an excuse for sin. Is it strange to you in both of these passages an underlying lesson in parenting and fatherhood is pressed upon us? It's emphasizing for us, don't repeat the sins of your earthly fathers. Don't repeat the sins of your earthly fathers. Look to, trust on, heed the words instead of your heavenly Father who keeps his promise always. Amen? Beloved church family, is there anyone here who has grown cold to God's promises? Who are neglecting the importance of God's word and as a result at the brink of unfaithfulness? Is anyone here who are growing cold and weary of trusting in God's word? Is there anyone here whose faith is waning because of your trust of God's word is weak and failing? In a day where so many so-called Christians who once professed faith have turned away from God into faithlessness, in a time where so many have abandoned their faith, deconstructing their faith, I want you to be encouraged in these words of caution and warning. I want you to recall the words of Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 2.13, If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Brothers and sisters, as those who are in Christ, Abathar's example is a warning for us to remain faithful to him, to encourage us when we feel weak in our faith, to exhort us to stay the course, to remember the mercy of God. Although your circumstances may not be playing in your favor right now, know that God is at work. Know that God is sovereign. Know that God is in control. Whatever difficult circumstances God has you in right now, it's to grow your trust of Him. It's to sanctify your faith in His Word. Amen? Romans 8.28 promises, And we know that for those of us who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. That's point number two. Point number three, how does God establish His kingdom? Point number three, by executing justice in order to bring peace. Verses 28 through 35. Through the account of Joab, the lesson we learn is of a man who defied the king. Joab was an unrighteous commander. 
So look at verses 28 and 29. It says this. When the news came to Joab, for Joab had supported Adonijah, although he had not supported Absalom, Joab fled into the tent of the Lord and caught hold of the horns of the altar. And when it was told, King Solomon, Joab has fled to the tent of the Lord, and behold, he is beside the altar. Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, Go strike him down. You see, Joab was the military arm of Adonijah's attempted coup. The details of verse 28 and 29 are important because they recall the backstory of Joab's current predicament. The fact that Joab supported Adonijah, although he had not supported Absalom, tells of Joab's unfortunate tale, doesn't it? Joab was King David's commander, the commander of Israel's army. He was once David's right-hand man. As I said in the previous sermon, Joab was the general who helped King David conquer Jerusalem, who helped suppress every rebellion against David's royal throne, who protected his life by assassinating David's enemies. Joab was once utterly devoted to David, and he believed that he knew David's interest even better than David himself did. Hence, that was his flaw. Joab killed Absalom, although David commanded that his life be spared even when he revolted against his father, David's throne. And so Joab, as I shared with you from last message, was put out of David's royal favor. And so in partnership with Adonijah, Joab attempted to regain his commandership against David's wishes. Now that's the background. But the important part is this. Joab, like Adonijah, seeks asylum in God's tent by taking a hold of the horns of the altar for protection. But Solomon isn't faced. He orders Joab's death. Go strike him down there beside the altar. Solomon commands, if that is Joab's wish, as according to verse 29 and 30, let him be dead right there. And the reason for his sentence is clear in verses 31 through 33. Look at those verses, 31 through 33. Do as he had said. Strike him down and bury him. And thus take away from me and from my father's house the guilt for the blood that Joab shed without a cause. The Lord will bring back his bloody deeds on his own head because without the knowledge of my father David, he attacked and killed with the sword two men more righteous and better than himself. Abner, the son of Nair, commander of the army of Israel, which you can read about in 2 Samuel 3. And Amasa, the son of Jether, commander of the army of Judah, which you can read about in 2 Samuel 20. So shall their blood come back on the head of Joab and on the head of his descendants forever. What these verses tells us is that although Joab was once a respectable commander of David's army, he was indeed a bloodthirsty, power-hungry murderer. He murdered in cold blood men who were more righteous and better than himself simply because he could. Joab was unrighteous through and through. His true colors were showing murder after murder. There was no righteousness in him. Hence, even refuge in the tent of the Lord's army could not protect him. Brothers and sisters, don't miss this. This is a lesson for you and me today. Superficial religiosity, nor any false religion, cannot protect anyone from their sins. Going to church won't cover up your unrighteousness at all. God knows and sees the unrighteous, and God knows who they exactly are. At the mention of Joab and the head of his descendants forever, 
It's talking about Joab and his descendants will be punished forever. You may have thought, geez, what a harsh punishment. Uh, What did Joab's children and his descendants ever do that they are being cursed like this? Why is his whole house being cursed? Well, what the scriptures are doing is pointing us to the spiritual descendants of Joab and all who are unrighteous. Justice will be their reward. No mercy will be found in their house. They will receive just what they deserve. All who follow the path of Joab's unrighteousness and fake religion and flippant loyalty and hunger for power will justly receive God's wrath. Now, here's something amazing. Contrasting Joab and his unrighteous descendants forever, the second half of verse 33 says, but for David and his descendants, and for his house, and for his throne, there shall be peace from the Lord forevermore. (sighs) My goodness, I don't want to go there yet. But you can hear the whispers of his name, can't you? The one who will bring true peace and forever shalom. His judgment will be righteous. His asylum will be safe and secure. His execution will be justified. God establishes his kingdom by executing justice in order to bring God's peace. His peace is greater than the shalom of Solomon. His peace is truer than the shalom of Adonijah, you see. Brothers and sisters, is there anyone here who are hiding their true colors under the guise of power and performance, perhaps? Are you like Joab thinking to yourself, Look at all that I have done for the king. I deserve better. Are you like Joab seeking refuge at the altar of God with no righteousness to back you up and stand you up firmly on his holy ground? Are you like Joab, a man of war instead of a man of peace? Everywhere you go, drama surround. Why is that? Are you like Joab, a man who defies the words of the king? Then you should know you deserve death As scripture clearly says, the wages of sin is death. As Solomon's father, King David, urged justice upon Joab in his final words to his son, scripture teaches us in Exodus 34 that the Lord does not leave the guilty unpunished. Well, if you find yourself guilty to any of the aforementioned sins, then listen very carefully to the final point of how you might receive mercy. Fourth and final point, how does God establish his kingdom? Point number four, By establishing his authority in accordance with his commands. By establishing his authority in accordance with his commands. Verses 36 to the end. The final set of verses address the second of the names that King David addressed to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Shimei was not to be held guiltless. Let's read those verses 36 through 44. It says this. Then the king sent for Shimei and said to him, Build yourself a house in Jerusalem and live there, but do not go anywhere else. The day you leave and cross the Kidron Valley, you can be sure you will die. Your blood will be on your own head. Shimei answered the king, What you say is good. Your servant will do as my lord the king has said. And Shimei stayed in Jerusalem for a long time. But three years later, two of Shimei's slaves ran off to Achish, the son of Mecca, king of Gath, And Shimei was told, your slaves are in Gath. At this, he saddled his donkey and went to Achish at Gath in search of his slaves. So Shimei went away and brought the slaves back from Gath. 
When Solomon was told that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and had returned, the king summoned Shimei and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and warn you? On the day you leave to go anywhere else, you can be sure you will die. At that time, you said to me, What you say is good, I will obey. Why then did you not keep your oath to the Lord and obey the command I gave you? The king also said to Shimei, You know in your heart all the wrong you did to my father David. Now the Lord will repay you for your wrongdoing. Now Shimei is super interesting, isn't he? Because who in the world is he? In 2 Samuel 16.5, he was a man from the house of Saul, of the Benjaminites, who cursed King David continually in the days of David's troubles. Shimei sought forgiveness from David, as according to 2 Samuel 19.18, and he was granted mercy, and he was put under house arrest. Taking his father's word, Solomon had set an agreement with Shimei, following up, don't leave and cross the Kidron Valley, for on that day you can be sure that you will die, and your blood will be on your own head. And Shimei had agreed, what you say, Solomon, is good. Shimei had agreed to the conditions that they were good. Yet, what does he do? He had broken it. He knew the commands, yet he ignores it. See how in verse 43, Solomon points out how Shimei not only disobeyed the king's command, Solomon's command, but also an oath to the Lord. And what we see in Shimei is a man who forgets and forfeits God's mercy. Just like his name means in Hebrew, Shimei, which means the one who hears, Shimei was one who did not listen to the king's words. He did not obey the king's words. He presumed upon the king's commands and thought that he could get away with it. In verse 44, Solomon recalls to Shimei the wrong that he did to his father David with his words. He cursed the Lord's anointed rather than bless the Lord's anointed. Brothers and sisters, what is the lesson of Solomon's reign being established by God by expelling threats of self-exaltation, by exiling the unrighteous, by executing justice upon those who refuse to hear, keep, and curse God's anointed? I hope that you are getting it loud and clear. We all are guilty. We all deserve to die and receive the death sentence. That is the point. But, but, but Yahweh establishes his kingdom, doesn't he? He does it by keeping his covenant promises, by fulfilling his word, by exacting justice on his enemies, and by showing mercy on those who are his own. How does he do this? By the fulfillment of his covenant through the promised offspring of David, whose kingdom has been established for all eternity. Brothers and sisters, unlike Adonijah, who sought to make himself king, Jesus Christ, the son of David, is the true and promised Messiah King. Not the self-exalting king, but the self-humbling king who came down to earth, laying down his heavenly glory in the form of human flesh. Truly God and truly man. Unlike Abiathar, who was the unfaithful priest expelled from his priesthood, Jesus Christ is the merciful, faithful high priest, according to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 16 and 18, who made himself the propitiation for the sins of the people. He himself, brothers and sisters, had suffered on the cross by his death in order that he can aid those who are tempted by sin and by weakness and faithlessness. And as according to our scripture reading from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 35, when God promised and the prophets prophesied, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest 
who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Jesus is that faithful high priest. Hallelujah. Unlike Joab, the commander, who defied the king's orders and sought to exact justice on his own terms by murdering, Jesus is the righteous commander of the Lord's army, according to Joshua chapter 5, 15, who was the one who was murdered for his enemies. No one is more better and upright than he, Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Unlike Shimei, the one who would not listen to the king's orders or keep his oath to the Lord, Jesus is the fully obedient one, even death on a cross. Unlike Shimei who cursed God's anointed, Jesus Christ became the curse for us in order that we may have life abundant and eternal life forevermore. Brothers and sisters, guests and visitors, Jesus is our only hope for those of us who are guilty apart from him. Did you notice how all throughout this passage, as Josh Liu and Sharon Wu noticed in our community group, the word house or home is repeated over and over again. Solomon sends Adonijah to his house, chapter 153. Solomon sends Abithar to his estate, chapter 226. Joab is buried in his own house, chapter 234. And Solomon tells Shimei to build a house in chapter 2, verse 36. Get this, this theme will play an important part in the kings because those who seek to build their own houses will be crushed. And those who seek to build God's house the promised son of David will stand. So guests and visitors, which house are you seeking to build today? Your own house or God's house? This message is an invitation to you who do not know Christ to build upon Christ's foundation and to build together with God's people his eternal kingdom which will last forever, which has no end for his glory and for your own good. Repent which means to turn away from trusting in the things of this world and from yourself. Believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again for you and trust in him with all your worries, with all your concerns, with all your anxieties. Trust in him who is the only hope. Trust in him with your whole life today and forevermore. Please come and talk to one of the pastors at the close of service at the doors. We would love to talk to you or talk to somebody smiling next to you. We have been praying for you. We want to share with you the good news of why Jesus Christ is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Dear beloved NCBC family, 2 Corinthians 5.1 says this, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house that is not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And Jesus says in Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 21, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For the kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of God is here for those of us who trust in the word of God, in the reign of God, in the rule of God today. His house, which will last forever and ever and ever. His kingdom that has no end. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come before you today. Thank you for the warnings and the reminders that all who seek to build their own houses will be crushed. Father, the guilty cannot stand under your wrath. Father, you are a just God who exacts justice upon all your enemies who stand against you. Father, how dare we think 
that we can be our own gods, we cannot compare to you. Father, we surrender to you on our knees and on our faces with our hands raised, surrender to you. Father, you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. We worship you today for who you are, confessing, admitting that we are sinners, guilty as charged. Father, only by your Son, Jesus Christ, have we we been granted mercy and hope and life. Help us to live as humble people. Help Help us to live as people who are obedient to your word. Help us to hope in the promises of your word, which will last forever to all eternity. Father, if there's anyone here who do not know your word or trust in your word, Father, reveal to them who you are by these words. And Father, bring their dead souls to life for your glory's sake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.